The grounds at Buford Middle School are eerily quiet for a Tuesday. Students, including my eighth grade daughter, won't be coming back here for the rest of the school year, but the bell still rings. The enormity of the impact of this COVID-19 emergency seems to grow each day as the number of cases in our area continues to rise, as has been predicted by epidemiologists and state officials. There are 290 cases confirmed in the state officially by the Virginia Department of Health, but we know that the virus is out there. It's been 13 days now since Albemarle and Charlottesville both declared local declarations of emergency to prepare for the COVID-19 outbreak. That's led to the physical closing of schools, but local government is starting to come back to life. Um, and we have uh, made adjustments um, as quickly as we can and responsibly as we can to adjust our work. I look forward for other opportunities to communicate uh, with our community about what we're doing. I'm Sean Tubbs, and on today's 10th installment of this podcast about Charlottesville's response to the COVID-19 crisis, we hear from local officials throughout the area about how they're responding and we drop in on some examples of how city and county officials are trying to stay connected with citizens. We'll also get a brief update from Governor Northam and hear a little about how the local food hub is stepping up to make sure output from local farmers is still available to people throughout the crisis. With school and business closures, children, the elderly, and others are dependent on emergency feeding efforts, which largely consist of highly processed and shelf-stable options, despite the fact that fresh food is critical to the health of our vulnerable communities. It's March 25th, and another day waiting to see how much social distancing has helped reduce the spread of COVID-19, a virus that can be spread by a carrier even before symptoms present themselves. Concern over the possibility of our hospitals being overwhelmed has led to drastic measures. As of midnight, Governor Ralph Northam's Executive Order 53 came into effect, further restricting commercial activity as a way of limiting human contact. Here is Northam from his briefing yesterday, March 24th. Every decision we make is based on science and data. And as your governor, I take full responsibility. The feedback I'm hearing from Virginians is supportive. You understand that while these changes are difficult, they are necessary. You understand that we are fighting a biological war and to have economic recovery, we must get through this health crisis first. Northam stated several times that he understands the emotional toll this decision has had on Virginians. The news that the academic year is over has devastated many people. We have students who miss their classmates and teachers, teachers who miss their students, and high school seniors who are facing their last semester of school with no prom no graduation ceremony, none of the rites of passage that should mark these big changes. Northam said all parts of our society have already changed in response to what will be a months-long fight against the coronavirus. That's also the case for local government, which has so far seen a temporary suspension of public meetings. That's beginning to change, and we'll get there in a minute. But on Friday, Albemarle County put out a video to stay in touch with citizens. Albemarle County is working tirelessly to balance essential services with community safety with respect to COVID-19. That's Jeffrey Richardson, the county executive and emergency management director for Albemarle. The county declared a state of emergency on March 12th. 
That was 13 days ago, almost two weeks ago. Here's Deputy County Executive Doug Walker. The business is not usual. I think that's pretty, pretty clear. Um, and we have uh, made adjustments um, as quickly as we can and responsibly as we can to adjust our work um, in order to, um, again, to both maintain the critical services that our public relies uh, upon um, from local government in order to, to, to meet daily needs, as well to adjust to the needs being, being kind of caught or affected or put on us by the emergency. We have heard from Charlottesville Mayor Nakia Walker on this program, but so far we have not heard from her equivalent in Albemarle County. Ned Galloway is the chair of the Board of Supervisors, and here he is speaking on Friday, March 20th. Well, I'm really impressed with our leadership team here in the county and all of our staff for that matter. Everybody has been even keeled, they've been remaining calm, but they understand the seriousness of the threat and what's going on, but they're all ahead of it. We have all of these sorts of plans and procedures in place for any sort of crisis to come up, and this is no different. The job of figuring out how to come up with a plan to allow for public comment at Albemarle's meetings is up to Emily Kilroy, Albemarle's Director of Communications and Public Engagement. Thanks for tuning in with us today. We hope you uh, continue to have patience with us as we work through what is really uncharted territory. We don't know what COVID-19 means for our organization and for our community, but we want you to know that we're working really hard day and night throughout the entirety of this situation to ensure that we're maintaining our essential services and keeping our community safe. Until yesterday, Albemarle had not scheduled its next meeting, in part because they were not sure if they could. They got some clarity on Friday, March 20th, when Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring issued an opinion about local government functions during an emergency. Governor Northam addressed this during his briefing on Saturday. General Herring's opinion makes clear public bodies should ask themselves, is the action we're taking truly essential? If not, they should defer it until they meet in person again. We're not throwing out public accountability and transparency measures because there is an emergency. Bad policies can happen that way. The regular features of public meetings remain critical, including the need for public access, public, excuse me, proper public notice, publicly available agendas, roll call votes, and recorded minutes. Good evening and welcome to the Greene County Board of Supervisors meeting of Tuesday, March 24th. That's Bill Martin, the chair of the Greene County Board of Supervisors, which met for the first time last night since the emergency. Five members and six staff members spaced themselves carefully in the meeting room in order to maintain distance. Before we do matters from the public this evening, this is a little bit of an extraordinary uh, session uh, this evening. Um, extraordinary circumstances uh, create uh, a need to do things a little bit differently. We are in an unprecedented, unprecedented situation here in Greene County. Um, like so many communities around us and in the Commonwealth of Virginia and, and across the country, we're forced to adjust and adapt uh, to multiple changes in protocol uh, on a daily basis. And um, we're going to try and do that here in Greene County as well. Martin said he is impressed so far by how he has seen Greene County residents respond. He encouraged people to stay in touch with each other from a safe distance. Uh, we've still got phones, we've still got the internet, and we can still uh, go next door and talk across uh, fence lines or whatever as long as we're maintaining 
a safe distance. But let's reach out uh, to our community and stay in touch with everyone. Staying in touch with everyone is what local governments are trying to do as well. What are the current objectives of the city's leadership when it comes to this incident? Right, so we've got uh, four primary objectives. Uh, One is to sustain essential operations of local government. That's Charlottesville Fire Um, Chief Andrew Baxter being interviewed by Brian Wheeler, the city's communications director. This was part of a pilot for an online information program that Wheeler and his team have put together to help inform the public at this time. Charlottesville City Council held a meeting on March 16th that I documented in the second episode of this podcast. Since then, the ability to use the technology has increased as more people become comfortable with it. This kind of programming by local governments is more important now than ever. Most of us don't have the opportunity to hear from city officials up close, especially now that we're so far apart from each other. But we need to hear Chief Baxter and other officials explain very clearly that to get through this, we're going to all think about how we're part of a system and how we can contribute. That system includes public safety employees who are likely going to be infected first. Our workforce is going to be uh, key to getting us up and back and running again when we get to that recovery phase, whenever that happens. Um, The next thing is we're very cognizant of the need to identify and protect and support the most vulnerable in our community. So our homeless population, people that are housing unstable, people with chronic medical conditions, people with addictions, um, people that are at higher risk for complications from COVID and other infectious diseases, uh, people that are over 60, uh, people that are immunocompromised, pre-existing conditions, Baxter said the whole public health strategy of social distancing is paramount to avoid the number of deaths that might happen when the healthcare system becomes overwhelmed or closer to capacity. It is important to stay home to flatten the curve. The, the reasoning behind that is that the system itself, hospitals, hospital beds, ICUs, ventilators, staff that can manage patients that are that sick, um, has limitations. There's a cap. Um, So if we can extend out the total number of cases and the total number of infections over a longer period of time, uh, that will give the healthcare system the ability to adapt, to flex a little bit, uh, to be able to provide the appropriate level of care uh, for people who come down with uh, the COVID disease. I can't stress enough how much the public needs information at this time. Local government can provide, and we're seeing examples of that now. Listen to this three-minute exchange between Wheeler and Baxter about testing. These are the things that so many people want to hear. And as we mentioned, the the number of test positive cases over the past week has gone from one to now about 16. Mm -hmm. Again, today's March 24th. Um, This is a number that's going to change, and and we expect it to grow as, as more people are tested. We do, and it's it's very clear given the limitations of testing that the the uh, rate of diagnosis is 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 behind, um, and that will also at some point when we have a, a clear understanding of what that denominator is, how many people uh, test positive in the community, uh, will change the statistics in terms of morbidity and mortality. But at this point, um, we're the preventive measures that we're taking, the mitigation measures that we're taking. Um, would be what we would do in any circumstance at this point in the development of the, of the disease curve. And then I know the grassroots efforts by mm-hmm. community members have been pretty impressive as well. What have you seen on that front? Yeah, so um, some 
some wonderful people in the community set up a website called supportseville.com. Um, within the last week or 10 days, um, one of the primary issues that the community has, has understood now for um, certainly the last week is the challenges that we face with personal protective equipment. And that's true in the hospital, that's true uh, for us as first responders, police, fire, EMS, uh, but there's a particular part of the medical community of the healthcare system that was really not addressed in terms of PPE, and that was unaffiliated medical providers. So doctors, nurse practitioners, other providers out in the community that weren't necessarily tied to a major practice uh, or to one of the large health systems. Um, so uh, a series of phone calls and, um, and Twitter messages and um, really almost entirely community effort uh, they were able to stand up within the framework of that support Seville website, um, uh, an element called equip Seville. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is to simply connect people that have PPE uh, with people that need it. So clinicians, providers, medical providers that have a need for personal protective equipment go to that site and they fill out a form that identifies you know, who they are, what their, their level of practice is, where their practice is, and then people in the community that have PPE um, say, I want to donate. Um, and then those are connected together sort of on the back end. One of the really fascinating things that people are figuring out now is that there are a lot of people in the community that aren't medical professionals that have PPE. So painters and people that do drywall and welders and tattoo parlors that have surgical masks or, or medical gloves uh, that are stepping up and saying, I don't need these right now you guys need this more than I do. So every time a community member or a community group solves the problem on their own uh, within the framework of a disaster setting, it keeps that scarce resource that we have, that fire engine, that medic unit, that ambulance, that nurse from having to deploy into that environment. Mm-hmm. So we, we are um, very, very excited when we see that type of organic community solution. Let's go back to yesterday's press briefing from Virginia Governor Northam. The question of whether there is enough protective equipment, PPE, to protect our healthcare workers from COVID-19 has come up a lot in the last few days. Northam had some news yesterday. We have received the first shipment of PPE, such as masks, gowns, and gloves from the national stockpile, and we have distributed that to health departments and other providers. We expect our second distribution next week. We know it will not be enough, and this is an issue nationwide. Northam said the state's Economic Development Office is using its network of contacts to try to find new sources of PPE during this crisis. For example, we're talking to dentists, to people in the tech industry, the coal industry, and tobacco companies. And we have some very promising leads from Virginia manufacturers about turning their production lines into producing PPE. I have been wondering from my home whether material is making its way to local governments. I was glad to have watched the Greene County Board of Supervisors meeting, where I learned some information from Alyssa Metter, Greene's Emergency Services Director. Um, The Department of Health is going to be receiving a shipment of PPE. Um, This this allotment, this equipment is actually designated for certain facilities, not uh, EMS, but rather urgent care, doctor offices, and assisted living facilities. 
This morning, I did receive a very limited supply of PPE for our uh, public safety community from the Office of EMS um, that came from the national stockpile. Um, right now, it's sitting in my office, and this will be distributed to our local agencies as well as social services. Um, because like our first responder social services work continues um, and they do go into to houses um, so we need to protect them as well. It's clear that a steady supply of personal protective equipment is going to be needed for a long time. This is an issue that we're all going to have to think about and see what we can do and contribute to. It is March 25th. If Virginia is to get through this and protect our health care workers, we're all going to have to think up ways to be part of the solution. Yesterday's pilot of Charlottesville City Government's community news program happened eight days after the City Council's public hearing on March 16th that used Zoom to try to sample public hearing. Brian Wheeler and his team have smoothed out the tech to the point where they can invite people to comment. On Tuesday, a journalist asked the first question. I'm going to invite uh, Nolan Stout from the Daily Progress to join us. Nolan, can you hear us? And do you have a question for Chief Baxter? Yeah, can you hear me? We can, yes. All right. Um, uh, I guess my first question was, uh, do you know if any uh, of the city's public safety workers have been exposed or need to be quarantined yet, or if everyone's in good shape right now? We currently do not have any city public safety uh, members in quarantine. Our democracy has always depended on the ability to hear from government officials and to ask them questions. And it's good to see that some of these new ways of communications are beginning to come together. Wheeler says they'll do another version of this program on Thursday with Mayor Nakaya Walker and City Manager Teron Richardson. Watch it and listen. During the question and answer period at the March 24th briefing, a reporter asked Governor Northam about the comments from President Trump that he wanted to take the country and open it back up again. Virginia Governor Northam has a different take. Uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that we all want our lives to return to normal as as fast as possible, but I, I think we have to use science, uh, we have to use data, we have to use consultation with folks like I have uh, behind me, and really uh, do what's in the best interest, in, in our case, of Virginians. And as I've said, uh, you know, while it would be nice to say that, uh, that uh, this will be behind us in two weeks, that's really not what the data tells us. Uh, the data tells us that this will be with us for uh, at least two to three months and perhaps even longer. Northam said we should be prepared for the situation to worsen. Yeah, the question is, are our measures working? And, you know, Henry, we have taken aggressive steps uh, to keep Virginians safe. And, and I, I wouldn't say so much as the numbers uh, tell us that it's working, but science, science and experience uh, dealing with infections, dealing with pandemics, uh, tell us that these are the things that we need to do. And if we comply with them, uh, they will work. And so, you know, I encourage uh, if uh, Virginians to continue to, to abide by these. Uh, our numbers, uh, for a couple of reasons, are going to keep going up. Our deaths, unfortunately, are going to keep going up. We have nowhere come close to hitting that peak of the curve. But if we continue to do what we're recommending, we will hopefully flatten that curve as much as we can. And again, that's to protect our capacity of our healthcare industry to, to make sure that if and when Virginians come in and they need hospitalization, that we have the beds available, especially ICU beds, that we have the staff available, and that we have the equipment that we need. Finally today, I'm reaching out to local organizations to give them a chance to say what they're doing to help during this COVID-19 crisis. 
Later today, the local food hub is testing out their first drive-through farmers market as a way of experimenting with connecting producers with their customers, especially at a time when everything has been disrupted. Details on that are in the show notes. This is a very important topic, and I asked Portia Boggs, the communications director for the local food hub, to tell us how the COVID-19 crisis is affecting community food systems. We'll hear more on this important topic in the days to come. A local food hub is taking measures to ensure that family farmers in Virginia stay afloat during the COVID-19 pandemic and that emergency feeding efforts in Charlottesville include fresh, healthy products. Local producers are in a moment of extreme uncertainty and vulnerability, as many of the buyers they rely on, such as universities, K-12 schools, and restaurants, have shut their doors or are trimming their operations. Farms operate on razor-thin financial margins, and this social and economic crisis is going to have significant impacts on their businesses. At the same time, with school and business closures, children, the elderly, and others are dependent on emergency feeding efforts, which largely consist of highly processed and shelf-stable options, despite the fact that fresh food is critical to the health of our vulnerable communities. The global supply chain is also showing signs of strain, as increasingly empty shelves indicate. As COVID-19 spreads, food brought in from other regions may become harder to access. The good news is that local and regional food systems, which are local food hub specialty, are agile, resilient, and responsive. Ours is still functioning and flowing, and local food hub knows how to harness these community assets to create solutions in times of crisis. Specifically, we are working with our farmers to purchase food or subsidize purchasing food from them uh, for emergency feeding efforts, including adapting our fresh pharmacy fruit and veggie prescription program, creating diverse markets for farms, including our upcoming drive-through farmers market, and coordinating with community organizations such as the Charlottesville Food Justice Network, the PB&J Fund, and Charlottesville Fit City Schools in their efforts to feed those in need. Of particular note, Local Food Hub is holding a drive-through pre-order-only market with five vendors, Bel Air Farm, Caramount Farm, Little Hat Creek Farm, Radical Roots, and the Pie Chest on March 25th at the Ravana River Company. To date, the market has done over $6,500 in sales with 120 participants. Um, Attendees will purchase food from local vendors in advance and pick up the orders without leaving their cars and while maintaining social distancing. Local Food Hub anticipates that this will be the first of a series of safe market alternatives. To support Local Food Hub's efforts, you can go to www.localfoodhub.org slash COVID. We also encourage you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Local Food Hub and follow our blog for up-to-date resources on how to support our community in the COVID crisis. And that's it for today's program. We'll be back with another installment as soon as we can. I do want your audio. There is one way you can get it to me. If you have something you'd like to send me, uh, we don't even have to talk first. You can just record audio on your phone using voice memos or the equivalent and record yourself saying what you want to say. Uh, you can, it can be about anything. I don't know if I, I, I won't be able to use it all necessarily, but I would appreciate the ability to be able to document as much of this as I can. And then once you've recorded this phone interview, email the audio to wordcast at gmail.com. That's wordcast at gmail.com. Again, I'm Sean Tubbs, and thank you for listening. 